amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia. And by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information on their latest activities, please click on the links which you can find on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. This is Nick Cheesman with a happy announcement that after Sumit Mandal and I recorded the following interview, the Bender Prize Committee of the Association for Asian Studies awarded Sumit Mandal the 2020 Harry J. Bender Prize for the best first book in Southeast Asian Studies. Congratulations to Sumit on getting the prize for his Becoming Arab. I do hope that it will make you even more interested in the discussion that follows. And if you want to know more about the prize, click on the link from the webpage that features this interview. In the wake of the so-called war on terror, we've become accustomed to racialized portrayals of the Arab as an inflexible and threatening other to the mores and ways of the non-Arab world. Although these portrayals are new in their historical contingencies and sociological particulars, the manner in which Arabs are represented today recalls an earlier period in Southeast Asia, when European colonizers cast Arabs they encountered there, and Arab men especially, as provocateurs of otherwise peaceable non-Arab Muslims. Yet, as Sumit Mandal discusses in Becoming Arab, Creole Histories and Modern Identity in the Malay World, published in 2018 by Cambridge University Press, this representation jars with the fluidity and hybridity of Arab identities in Southeast Asia before and under colonial rule. Sumit is an Associate Professor in History at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia, and he'll be speaking with me, Nick Cheesman, a Fellow at the Australian National University and co-host of the new book's in Southeast Asian Studies channel on the New Books Network. Sumit, thank you for coming onto the channel to talk about becoming Arab. Thank you, Nick, for having me. Um, I'm much looking forward to speaking about my book with you. The book begins with a crisp statement of purpose to examine the power and limits of race categories through a history of Arabs in the Malay world. What do we learn about how these categories work through the study of maritime Southeast Asian history in particular? Well, what I'm doing in the book is locating Arabs in a different kind of historiography. So in most work that's done on Southeast Asia, there's still a tendency to look at things through the national as well as colonial lens. Typically, the study of identity and in particular ethnic groups, is understood through a lens that became fully formed during the colonial period. So you have ideas about the indigenous and the foreign established under British and Dutch colonial rule in this region. Those categories then carried over into the national historiographies of the nation states that were formed roughly in the middle of the 20th century. The rich and long histories of connections with Chinese, Indians, Arabs, and others in this part of the world are reduced to the kind of identitarian beginnings during the colonial state. So most of the historiography that looks at, say, the Arab minority or Chinese minority in Indonesia would begin from roughly the 20th century 
during the colonial period and move into the formation of the modern nation state in Indonesia. But what I've done in the book is actually extend that period, move away from what is basically a kind of nationalist historiography to understand Arabs within a longer span of time that subsumes the colonial period, but actually begins before the arrival of European colonial states and ends uh, before the fully formed nationalisms um, of the mid-20th century. So you get to see a more complex historiography of um, identity making and categories, which in my opinion, uh, at least I hope, uh, allows for us to then see complex futures for identities rather than seeing these um, ethnic minority categories or even the division between indigenous and foreign that's become institutionalized through citizenship. For my purposes, um, I've uh, reduced the Malay world here to um, three nation states, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore. And in each of these cases, you find ethnic categories understood in very neat blocks. The histories that were written about them during the colonial period are reproduced and refined in the modern nation state. And so I think, um, I, perhaps ironically, in the nationalist historiographies or national historiographies of these nation states, colonial categories are giving us a, given a certain totalizing power. Okay, so you're moving beyond national historiographies and also you're moving beyond those inquiries that are delimited to, say, periods of colonial rule or early post-colonial rule. What about your move beyond the Middle East in your inquiry into the figure of the Arab? What do we obtain through that move? By moving away from the Middle East, um, I'm doing the work of dislodging that category from what seems to be its so-called natural place. And that's part of what my book's overall purpose is, is to consider how historically, before the rise of nation-states, people were not necessarily bounded by place and especially territory in the ways that we, we think about the world today. I am extending the, our understanding of Arabness to be perhaps more global and certainly more Indian Ocean oriented, as have other scholars in, in, the, in the last 10 years, and thereby, I think, uh, suggesting other histories, other stories that might be told about the category of, of Arab. This answer then seems to go to one of the key terms in the subtitle of the book, which is uh, Creole histories. These Creole histories proceed and then are transformed by European colonial rule. If one of our listeners is to look up Creole in the Oxford English Dictionary, say they'll get a broad definition, uh, loosely, a person of mixed European and black descent. What does the term mean to you? How does your inquiry into Creole histories differ from what might be suggested by that definition? And why does it matter for your inquiry to emphasize this quality? Let me begin by um, thinking about a term that we know from Malay, how the term Peranakan describes people who have outsider or perhaps foreign origins but who have been socialized, who were born in the region. So it's a way of understanding identity and belonging that's quite unusual. And I translated that way of belonging that's captured in Pranakan as Creole. And suddenly it does merit attention because the term in English and in, in European languages really does uh, has been used in the study of linguistics in the Caribbean. But, you know, I must um, say that its use in Southeast Asian studies has also got uh, something of history. And um, William Skinner used the term Creole to talk about precisely the category of Chinese Pranakan, Chinese Creoles in Java. And later on, Ng Sing Ho has used the term Creole to talk about the Arab communities in the Malay world. So I think in this kind of scholarship, uh, which I have embraced in my own book, we are uh, rethinking the term Creole. It's being applied now to a different context 
And in this context, to say a bit more about what really pranakanda, the Malay term, translates to it conceptually, it really is a way of thinking about connected histories, connections across regions and ethnic groups and territories, which amount to new forms of identity. So many of the Creole Arabs that I, I study in my book are people who really wouldn't fit in their place of origin in any neat way, which is the Hadramaut in present-day Yemen, nor do they fit, fit neatly into the Malay you know, categories of the Malay world. What they represent for me is, is really a way of looking at histories of connection rather than uh, strictly defined categories. So when I use Creole, I actually emphasize the term Creole histories in my book title. So I'm not necessarily going out there looking for Creole communities, but I'm thinking about Creole as a way of considering histories that connect across boundaries, histories of mixed categories, um, but in a very broadly defined way. I think that really sets us up well then to turn to the contents of the book. Let's begin with your concern in the first chapter with the Arabs that you're encountering, especially your story is taken up with the Hadrami. Who are they and why are they so important to the story that you tell? Hadramis are from a valley in present-day Yemen, the Hadramaut, and have had a connection to this part of the world and the Indian Ocean for at least the last uh, five to 600 years. They became quite prominent in different parts of the Malay world from the 17th century onwards as they came as uh, traders, as scholars, purveying knowledge about Islam, as diplomats, having had uh, experience across the Islamic commercial centers of the Indian Ocean, which were very cosmopolitan centers. They would come to the Malay world applying skills that were valuable to newly Muslim courts, and uh, many of them quickly rose to positions of high status. Many intermarried, and we have the beginnings of Creole communities in uh, the, the northern part of the peninsula in Malaysia, in the state of Perlis, is a kingdom that has um, a lineage that's connected to Hadrami migrants in uh, parts of Sumatra, parts of Java, in Kalimantan, uh, in particular Pontianak. There is a history of a connection, again, through a royal lineage with the Hadrami. This, this is a community that's had a, a long and extensive history long before the arrival of Europeans. This history is frequently forgotten in the national historiography, whether written from within contemporary nation states and frequently also in the nation-centered historiography of Southeast Asia. So what I do in that first chapter is try to establish the terms of that moment um, prior to the colonial period, uh, what were the kinds of interactions, what, what, what is the kind of social world that you can see, say, around the 16th, 17th, or even the 18th century, before you have, properly speaking, uh, colonial states established. I wanted to not create a kind of fabled or nostalgic past but establishes the Malay world there in connection with Hadramis as a world of immense social fluidity. I use um, Malay texts there, uh, manuscripts um, that have been um, transcribed and uh, published, uh, in particular the work of a man called um, Abdullah al-Misri, who wrote in the early 19th century. And I also use other sources to try to understand uh, the kinds of fluidity in categories prior to the arrival of colonial rulers. And you, you see numerous uh, people of Arab descent who uh, climb to positions of enormous uh, influence, whose uh, place within a Malay court would be quite intimate. You know? So they, they could be outsiders. At the same time, they have a very intimate position in the local ruling elite. 
having established that, part of my purpose was not to then make that the background chapter and then move on with the kind of racialization that takes place with the colonial rule. What I wanted to establish was a certain kind of vocabulary, a social world, which I propose persists through the colonial period, but is, of course, vastly transformed. And in that way, I'm, I'm, I am making a historiographical connection through to the pre-colonial world. The kinds of Creole communities that were formed would persist well into the 19th century as the Dutch, for instance, are establishing the uh, colonial state in Java. And that means creating administrative apparatus for uh, controlling subject populations and so on. But the populations themselves retained uh, a level of fluidity. They did not suddenly transform into... Arabs with a very homogenous or clear-cut identity in the course of the racialized categorization under the Dutch. So you still have a lot of intermixing. You still have communities where people might have spoken Javanese, Malay, uh, Buginese, uh, sometimes quite intimately in interaction with each other. You still had, in many cases, uh, instances of connections to their place of origin in the Hadramaut or in India, which is another place uh, in which they sojourn before coming to the Malay world. So so these kinds of uh, Malay world as well as transregional connections were not entirely eliminated. Identities were much more fluid. This world was transformed but didn't disappear with colonial state penetration. Let's skip forward then to chapter three and this question of racialized categories for the differentiation of people in the Netherlands, East Indies after colonial occupation. What were those categories that the colonizers devised and used such that some people became Arab, as it were, and others not? And how did they enforce those categories? The categories um, that I look at were under the Dutch administration of Java. So though I speak of the Malay world, um, in this area of looking at the categorization, I focused on a specific site. And uh, you see in Java, the Dutch establishing, especially from the middle middle of the 19th century onwards, three primary categories. You have the Europeans, foreign orientals, and then at the bottom, you have natives who form the vast majority of the population. The Europeans are primarily Dutch, but other categories would be included. Under foreign oriental would be people of Chinese, Arab, and Indian descent. And natives, of course, are people with an enormously diverse background from Achinese to uh, Javanese to Buginese. What I do in the chapter is um, show how these categories develop uh, an administrative and uh, political legal significance. And this, I think, is certainly something that the Dutch are mindful of and which helps to shape their vision of the colony, how they, the Dutch went about producing these categories was uh, going beyond the sort of legal means. They created a system of strict residential control, so Arabs were appointed certain districts within, say, the capital of the colony Batavia, which is today Jakarta, and they would also be uh, required to carry travel passes issued by colonial authorities in order to move from that designated quarter to another location. So as you can imagine, for a community of people who were typically involved in trading or in peddling goods. Uh, these were cumbersome restrictions. Now, did this produce Arabs? Is, is this uh, what I mean in the title of the book, uh, Becoming Arab? Well, I think for me, what it does is it helps to constrain movement. Uh, it emplaces people within particular uh, districts with, uh, inside uh, urban areas. But I don't think that transforms the groups involved uh, immediately into Arabs. So you have a constraining process that suddenly begins to limit options. You have a a greater concentration of people who 
uh, of Arab descent in these particular districts. But what I remind readers of in the book is um, that these districts continue to be mixed um, because they were Creole to begin with and the Dutch didn't always have the ability to uh, police these districts as strictly as they would have liked. And these categories for control intersected with uh, a scholarly program of sorts that you discuss in Chapter 4, that is to say, the work of colonial scholar administrators who drew upon and contributed to racial thought of Europe at the time. The racializing and sexualizing representations they produced of Arab men cast them as degenerates that then would enable the Europeans to assert their own presumed moral superiority and and justify colonial domination. How was it that Arabs became a kind of ideal type other other for Europeans? How was it that the Arab became the exemplary category to enable arguments for a kind of European despotic paternalism and one that could be juxtaposed with the native in order to make knowledge claims about both? Well, the Arabs were a a special case to the Dutch because the idea was that the Arabs were a, a corrupting influence on what were otherwise a very accepting native population, accepting of Dutch rule. And the Dutch brought with them, especially towards the end of the 19th century, Orientalist notions about Arabs, seeing them as a representative of uh, an aggressive and even colonizing Islam, which they thought was quite distinct from the Islam they encountered in the Malay world. So the idea was uh, the Malay world constituted an Islam that was more uh, syncretic, more open to outside influence, and these uh, Arabs represented something more fanatic, aggressive, and and also potentially resistant to uh, Dutch rule. So it's interesting in these in these regards. It's really in the minds of the Dutch that they see a community of people becoming Arab. So it, it, certainly in the minds of many Dutch officers, they saw populations of Arabs quite distinct from the kinds of Creole histories we've talked about. They saw populations of Arabs, and in fact, even the, the use of the Arabic script in the writing of Malay or Javanese as external threats threats of a kind that are different from, say, the merely, say, economic threat that a, that a foreign Chinese uh, might pose. And I use um, foreign there ironically because part of the process that Arabs are undergoing is uh, parallels the process that others are undergoing who uh, the Dutch believe are outsiders. That includes the Chinese. So, Uh, People who've had long established histories are now in the late 19th century beginning to be understood as non-Indigenous, as foreign. And the category of indigeneity is being established by uh, mashing up, actually, a hugely diverse uh, world of peoples in the Malay world. And these kinds of categories, as I mentioned much earlier, would eventually be you know, come to govern the way citizenship is understood in many contemporary nation states. But to return to your question, the way in which Arabs were understood as representing a kind of an Islam that's unlikable or dislikable and that's posing a negative influence on indigeneity was helping to actually establish ideas about extremist Arabs and moderate natives that also have had a very long influence. Um, You could say even till today, you have ideas like these circulating. But what they do is actually dislodge uh, this category of people in the late 19th century from the older histories of interaction, interconnectedness. So Arabs play a particularly important role in the way the Dutch colonial government begins to envision its own uh, policy towards Islam in the Malay world. Sumit, let's pause for a sponsor's message. And when we return, we will go to the last part of the book on modern identities that follow colonial transformation of the Creole and discuss how you researched and wrote the book. 
New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where today's guest is Sumit Mandal, author of Becoming Arab. Sumit, before we turn to the contents of the book that remain, tell us what were the archival sources that you used? To do the kind of historiographical critique, meaning to expand the look at ethnic groups beyond colonial and national historiography, I had to look at three different types of sources, so, and they kind of work uh, with the structure of the book. So the first part, which looks at um, establishing the vocabulary of the social world prior to the colonial period, rested a lot on um, Malay Hikayat, a genre of writing, manuscript tradition, and the work of a Creole Arab named Abdullah Misri. In the second part of the book, which is on categorization and control, I rely a great deal on uh, Dutch sources because I'm looking at the formation of the different kinds of administrative um, and political legal categories that governed uh, Arabs. I also looked at uh, some uh, colonial uh, writing narratives about the figure of the Arab. And it's in the third part of the book that I turn to early publications in Malay, also bilingual publications in Malay and Arabic. I use mostly Malay sources and uh, only a few Arabic sources and anything useful in Dutch at the time. So in that last part of the book that looks at the establishment of uh, modern identities, I look at print publications emerging in um, in colonial uh, cities um, like Batavia, Surabaya. All right, let's turn back to the book's contents. And and the last part, as you've already alluded to, is concerned with modern identities of Arabs in the Malay world. Chapter 5 has a a pithy title, and indeed all of the chapters have very precise, uh, excellent titles. Its title is uh, Concerns the Turn Towards Istanbul. So who turned towards Istanbul and why did they do it? A small elite of landowners and uh, wealthy traders who began to style themselves as leaders of Arab communities in um, Java in particular, but their network stretched to Singapore. These people began to see in Istanbul a potential Islamic, say, political counterpoint to colonial power. So in in part, this was a reaction to the stringent controls that were being placed on them in the Dutch colony in particular. You might also ask why Istanbul and not their apparent place of origin, even if it might have been generations before, meaning Yemen, because, well, Yemen was a periphery. It was a place that they fled from. It had a very rich ancient civilization. But at the time that we're speaking of, it's on the periphery of the Islamic world. And Istanbul was emerging as a center of Islamic intellectual life. It was still the capital of an empire, even though it was a much weakened Ottoman Empire. So a number of elite families began to see in Istanbul a a source of identification that I argue helps to empower them. It's in this process now that the last part of the book actually shifts the burden of becoming Arab, the burden of this identity making to a set of elites. And I have to uh, say something that uh, we've not discussed so far. Uh, many of these elites um, from the Arab community of Hadrami origin are people who claim prophetic descent. So they uh, carry before their names the title Sayyid for men and Sharifa for women. So between their position as an economic elite, they 
also between that and the prophetic kind of uh, lineage that they claim and this turn towards Istanbul, you find a multifaceted means by which there is a kind of Arab elite in the becoming, in the in the happening. And these people begin to play an important role in the late 19th and early 20th century. You mentioned a moment ago uh, the, the titles Said and Sharifa, most of the book is taken up with male protagonists. Were there any women who were prominent among these elites? My story has been largely male-driven, but I have two considerations uh, with regard to that. One, I tried to find material on women, and um, in an earlier chapter, looking at the social and economic context within which this process of becoming Arab is taking place, I found an image of um, a studio portrait of a wealthy Creole Arab woman. I make uh, only minimal references to to women. And I think um, the reasoning for that is partly um, because the work of looking at these racial categories and leadership and seeing leadership uh, of an Arab elite in the making of um, a certain view of Arab was largely led by men. But I also have to admit, you know, I could have done more to understand and read the sources to see where women figured. Uh, I did try, but I don't think I was very successful. There is material on, uh, say, I saw names of women in the registers of ownership of ships, for instance, um, for a period, and possibly also in the registers of business and land ownership. So I think women do figure and and should be studied better. So what ultimately is the modern Arab identity in the Malay world of which you write in the closing chapters? What about it makes it modern? The elite we spoke about earlier that turned to Istanbul began by certainly the early 20th century to realize that it needed to pull its resources to establish uh, educational institutions and uh, charitable organizations that would empower pe- people of um, Arab descent as well as people categorized native in schools that were offering an Islamic education, but in combination with a variety of different subjects that they felt to be important uh, in securing employment in in uh, developing uh, the community in the early 20th century. And this was clearly a confrontation or an engagement by the Arab community with the terms of colonial modernity that were already being established. So you had colonial schools, colonial establishments uh, representing a certain view of modernity. And many of these Arab elites felt that they were excluded from opportunities uh, in education that would advance the community. In some instances, there was also a desire to provide alternatives to education from the what were provided by the Dutch. But mostly it was also about being excluded from the Dutch system. So very, very uh, few Arabs, maybe a, 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 a small number of elites would have been welcomed. Now, for the most part, the Dutch education system that was being established was, uh, you know, was was not open to the Arab elites and and others uh, in their coteries. So the organizations that began to emerge in the early 20th century begin to create alternative institutions that are modern with an Islamic inflection. So they provide a hybrid education. They include uh, Islamic subjects about law, about theology and learning Arabic, as well as subjects like mathematics, accountancy, Dutch, uh, English, and so forth. For me, what's uh, happening there in the process of becoming Arab is also that the elite that claims prophetic descent is producing itself as a representation of Arabness, as a particular, giving particular shape to the figure of the Arab 
And one of the things that was striking to me about this part of the book was how what you've just described, this manner of representation, seems to rest a kind of paradox that in the end, Arab identity remains constituted by a kind of cultural hybridity that you are exploring early in the book, that vocabulary of the Creole that you were speaking of in the first half of our discussion. And yet it's taken on a kind of exclusionary discourse that echoes the discourses of the colonizers. The process of becoming Arab in this case is adjusting to engaging with colonial rule, but inevitably also reproducing some of the politics of colonial categories. And what's interesting is, especially in, you know, in, in the final chapter of the book, I suggest that these creates, this creates conflicts within the Arab community. So what I want to propose through this kind of work is instead of looking at colonial categorization and colonialism as this totalizing force that you have um, colonialism arriving and societies being entirely transformed by colonial rule, what you have is a much more contested and uh, gradual process of change that is substantial, significant, but that doesn't necessarily erase uh, longer-term histories and the agency of colonial subjects themselves. So in in this case, uh, leaders of Arab communities. The book ends with a quite lengthy epilogue. What's that epilogue about and why did you choose to include it? Well, I thought that epilogue was necessary in order to give a broader range of readers, not just those who are interested in the specifics of um, critique of historiography, ethnic historiographies, or studies of identity that I'm doing in the book, but to have people who might have more contemporary interests or people who might be particularly keen to see how does this story that's largely 19th and early 20th century Based, what is what is its outcome in in contemporary nation states? So in it, I I try to locate the various ways in which in Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore, the ideas about Arabs have have found a place, and uh, and how in many ways um, little engagement there is with a kind of longer term view of ethnicity and identity, and how in many contexts, not only are the colonial terms of understanding ethnicity and identity institutionalized in the contemporary nation states. You know, I could argue in the context of Malaysia, for instance, you have a refinement of those colonial categories. One interesting aspect of the epilogue, I think, is comparatively how in particular Indonesia and Malaysia, perhaps to a lesser extent Singapore, compare in their manner of grappling with Arab pasts and presence. But also you speak to some of the impetuses for, if I recall correctly, what you refer to as a, a rediscovery of Arab pasts. And one of them is the reunification of North and South Yemen in 1990. What kind of effects did that have on this business of rediscovering the relationship between Arab uh, communities and the Creole histories, which you write earlier in the book, and the present-day politics and society of maritime Southeast Asia? Yeah, you would think um, that sometimes it's very hard for us, especially when I'm teaching. I I sometimes have to struggle to have students, for instance, um, appreciate that something happening 200, 300, never mind, say, 500 years ago, you know, has has relevance today. But they do in terms of the, the stories that are being told. So it's not necessarily the case that an event that took place uh, several centuries ago has an immediate connection to the present. But the story of these uh, communities, the Hadramis, or Arabs, and I've used both terms loosely, they are histories of connection across nations, across regional boundaries to the Hadramaut, have been retold in recent years, and as a result, affected contemporary identity. Now, the kinds of connections we talk about, in the, I talk about in the book, the long-standing histories, 
One of the ways in which they were transformed in the colonial period were by basically curtailing that level of connectedness. Uh, the colonial controls on travel and movement and entry into the colonies, for instance, uh, reduced the level of historical connection across uh, the Indian Ocean. Emergence of independent nation states uh, in the mid-20th century also created a, a new dynamic, which was basically people as, who uh, could have been labelled or who might be found out as having or foreign ancestry, like people of Arab descent, would frequently claim native identity. And this is something which recalls the, the long-standing history of Arabs being both intimately a part of this world and also a little bit outside of it. So in many cases in independent Indonesia and Malaysia from the mid-20th century, people of Arab descent identified with being um, local in one form or another, being Malay or being Javanese. And the connectedness with the Hadramaut had largely ended. What added to the absence of connections was the creation of the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen, which was a Marxist state aligned with the Soviet Union at the time. People from um, many of the nation states in the Malay world uh, were unable to travel to this state um, because of the Cold War. When the Soviet Union collapsed following the end of the Cold War, the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen also fell apart. Uh, diplomatic relations were um, reinstated between Yemen and many of the nation states of the Malay world, and travel and connection between these regions were resumed both by states and by people of um, Arab descent uh, in Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore. And I describe the process, the outcome of this as a rediscovery because uh, people who had very, very distant memories and certainly never even had any contact or actual visits to Yemen were now reimagining the possibility, reimagining their own identities. Arab associations and activities started to emerge in Singapore, certainly, and also to some extent Malaysia and Indonesia. And as a result, a reconnection had, you know, begins to take place in the imagination of people, which is then followed up by actual visits and efforts to reunite families uh, that have long uh, been uh, separated by politics of the second half of the 20th century. So might now today a politician or business person in Indonesia or Malaysia identify openly and deliberately as a descendant of the Prophet or as in some way Arab? Well, at this time, it's much less problematic. The categories of Arab are more acceptable in public life. There are various well-known uh, figures who um, are dispensers of Islamic knowledge, uh, who are inspiring speakers and so forth, who are of prophetic descent, who could be from Indonesia or Yemen, who circulate through these countries, uh, giving lectures, meeting people, uh, sometimes uh, speaking to large audiences. Uh, it would be easy to romanticize this and say, well, this is a kind of, you know, uh, recalls a kind of old... Uh, interconnectedness of the Indian Ocean. I don't think that's quite accurate, but but what you have is those histories of interconnectedness informing and giving legitimacy to new circulations and also allowing for, for these new circulations to take place because that longer history, you know, has left a certain cultural geographical imprint. So these circulations, for instance, uh, do not take place randomly across the world, they are taking place in the parts of the diaspora um, that have long existed, but I think in new form, in new context, and now negotiating new national communities, national boundaries. And in each case, I think you would have to look at the specific circumstances in Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, to, to ask how an Arab person or, or leader 
whether it's in politics, business, or in Islamic matters, and these are boundaries that are also sometimes artificial. And how they identify themselves today might be might really um, depend on the context in each each nation state. You can certainly see much more public circulations of uh, people who identify with Arabness, who identify with prophetic descent in all three countries. Sumit listeners who have stuck with us may be surprised to learn at this point that the book emerged out of your doctoral dissertation, which you submitted to Columbia way back in 1994. What brought you to the research topic then and what brought you back to it after all of these intervening years? Well, what took me to the topic many, many years ago was an interest in studying uh, Muslim societies. And my supervisor at the time, William Roff, introduced me to um, these communities of Arabs and said, well, this is an understudied topic. And I got involved initially in trying to understand an Islamic reformist movement uh, located largely in what is today Indonesia, in the Netherlands, Indies, and the, uh, the Dutch colony. But uh, in the process, I actually got much more interested in understanding who the people were behind this reformist uh, organization. In short, it was called the Al-Irshad movement, the reform movement. And so I, be- I looked at the leadership and found out it was largely driven by Arabs, and I wanted to understand the social history of these Arabs. So the dissertation research became a lot about the kind of identity formation among these Arabs. And um, soon after completing it, I returned to Malaysia and uh, to work at the National University of uh, Malaysia, University Kabangsa in Malaysia, for a variety of reasons, not least of which was anxiety over the quality and the worthiness of the work. I, I abandoned the project um, and uh, found myself writing about questions about race and identity in the Malaysian context and doing a range of other research. I think what brought me back um, after sort of trying for, you know, thinking I could keep it alive for many years was my growing interest in understanding the histories of connections between Asian societies, whether you call it connected histories, transnational histories, what I now describe as an interest in the transregional architecture of Asian histories, of Asian societies. That conversation began um, with a few close colleagues, uh, Sunil Amrit, Eng Seng Ho, Tim Harper, and um, Joel Khan. And it's really these four scholars with whom a, a strong community of ideas emerged and with whom I felt I could um, rethink the original dissertation I began to feel that there was uh, a way in which I could uh, not just um, revise the dissertation, but rethink it uh, in meaningful terms. Because I think the original dissertation was uh, was really working with an older, with the, with the old historiography that I now critique in the book. So it, it was situating uh, the Arab communities within the kind of uh, historiography of a national minority. Oh, that's all very interesting. And would you have any advice for people who are in a similar situation to what you were in, uh, looking at a project from some years ago and thinking about the possibility of reviving it? What I would say to colleagues who might have work that's been uh, left aside for a long period of time is that the possibility of revising is really quite real. And I find that being open to the conversation from um, a variety of colleagues on the topic is, is quite important. So I, I, I would think the, the one thing I can, I can have uh, a lot of faith in is uh, solid uh, and inspiring scholarly conversation. What are you working on now? I'm doing a number of things, but I'll highlight one uh, area of work because it emerges from the book in some ways. If anyone has an opportunity to read the book, I begin with a prologue that describes a sacred site uh, called Luar Batang in uh, 
the northern coast of Jakarta, where a person of Arabic descent with a prophetic genealogy is buried, and his gravesite has become a kramat in Malay, which is a potent site, a place that people visit um, because of its miraculous powers and because of its significance uh, as a historical as well as um, Islamic site. And I had more references to these um, sacred sites in my uh, earlier drafts of the book, which I found um, didn't work very well with the overall um, direction of the book. And it's something that continues to interest me. So I've been working in uh, more recent years in a more focused way on the sacred geographies constituted by a multitude of grave sites of people, not just of Arab descent, but others as well, um, who constitute a, a historical and sacred geography. And their very presence inscribes an older history into uh, what are sometimes hypermodern cities like Singapore. I am writing a book that I tentatively call Saints of the Southern Indian Ocean. So this will link uh, sacred geographies of the kind I've described in Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, and to some extent in Cape Town in South Africa. Wonderful to hear about that project. And also thank you for drawing the listeners' attention to the prologue, which we skipped over in the introductory remarks. Sumit Mandal also, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss Becoming Arab. Thank you very much, Nick. And thanks to everyone for listening. And if you've any comments on this episode or any other episode on the channel, or if you've suggestions for authors whom you think ought to be featured, don't hesitate to let us know. Our email addresses are available on the website. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.